0: Spending like a drunken sailor. Council has finished approving the 2023 to 2026 capital and
1: operating budgets, funding the city for the next four years. We'll spend our penultimate episode of this year breaking down everything you need to know. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking municipally. Municipally.
0: back to Speak Municipally, episode 203. As Max said off the top, this is our second to last episode of the year. Coming up next week will be our Councillor Jeopardy, letting off all the steam of this very stressful budget season. And because this budget season was so stressful and long, we've got
1: a big episode coming. Let's not waste any time. Let's get into the rapid fire. City Manager Andre Corbold, in an 11th hour decision, reversed course on climate funding and proposed an increase to the Edmonton Valley Zoo, saying, quote, Now you have funding for all the climates you want. But I've never heard of that type of monkey before. With budget stretching into its final day, many have questioned the efficiency
0: of council's process and meetings. During a discussion between Mayor Sohi and the clerk about how the meeting could be sped up, Councillor Aaron Paquette, who previously has raised point of clarification, point of information, and point of process, none of which are present in Robert's Rules of Order, interjected with point of pineapple. This fruit that I'm eating is very sour.
1: Fort Edmonton Park has announced a new exhibit to begin construction immediately. After the budget request to fund the park's expansion was rejected in a 6-7 vote by Edmonton City Council, the park has pivoted to building a French Revolution exhibit, including a 13-person capacity mega guillotine. Speaking Municipally is a proud
0: member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Mac, we have passed the 2023 to 2026 budget. It was a grueling multi-week process. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but this last week is when stuff really got real, and all the amendments were put to the vote, and the final vote occurred. So Mac, let's start overall. What were
1: your impressions? Well, first, let's just uh, let our listeners know what was passed. You probably have seen this online, but just to be clear, you're looking at about a 5% tax increase over the next four years. So it's 4.96, 4.96, 4.95, and 4.39 over the next four years. They voted separately on the two budgets. So you'll recall from previous episodes, we have a capital budget, which is about infrastructure, building things. And then there's the operating budget, operating all that infrastructure. The capital budget passed nine to four with Cartmell, Hamilton, Principe, and Rice opposed, voting no to the capital budget. And the operating budget passed uh, eight to five, with the same four as well as Councillor Andrew Knack voting against the operating budget. It was, as you said, a very grueling, long process, made worse by the fact that they added a couple of days, extended orders for the days they had already had. They spent an awful lot of time talking about the things that they talked about. And really, they talked about a small percentage of both of those two budgets, right? The capital budget at almost $8 billion, they made $224 million of adjustments. So pretty small amount. And, you know, similar kind of uh, percentage, maybe a little bit higher because of their sweeping request for cuts on the operating budget. But still, they left a good chunk of both of those budgets untouched. I want to talk a little bit about the
0: voting against. We'll get into the process here further in the episode. But you mentioned, you know, that four voted against the capital and operating and the additional of Andrew Knack voted against the operating budget. And I wanted to just stop and talk about how patently absurd it is to vote against a budget. This is something that I don't think council should permit in the future. It is meaningless. A councillor who votes against the operating budget, are they ostensibly saying they don't want the city? to operate. What is the purpose of voting against a budget? They've already proposed amendments and voted up and down particular amendments to the budget. So all the changes, the sum total should just be the budget. What we get when counselors vote against the budget is a political motive. Yeah, Counselors will have proposed amendments up and down, but then they're able to wash their hands of the entire process. Say, even if I increased the budget, I'm voting against the entire thing because it's too high. It's having their cake and eating it too. In past years, council has been operating with the exclusion of Councillor Mike Nickel in generally good faith. Playing politics and this aggressive politicization of each vote has not been so ever present. I think with this council, and we'll get into why further in the episode, council really needs to be sitting down and thinking hard How do we need to adjust this process so bad faith actors don't pervert the process in the future?
1: Yeah, the mayor in his closing remarks was quite clear. He said, all of us have a responsibility to own this budget. That was his message in his closing remarks to his colleagues, many of whom use their closing remarks to talk about the fact that some councillors were certainly going to vote no to this budget. And, you know, Councillor... Karen Tang called uh, her colleagues out for this. Aaron Paquette called colleagues out for this, and and so did Aaron Rutherford, who after the meeting was all done talking to the media, you know, said this is quote absolutely frustrating. Now they're going to get emails from constituents saying that they're mad about tax increase, and they can say, well, we voted no, when throughout this entire process they have voted yes, yes, yes to increases. End quote. And of course, like you mentioned off the top, this budget
0: was relatively untouched. Most of the budget was completely uninteracted with by city council. And I think the most glaring omission is there was no discussion whatsoever about Yellowhead Trail nor Terwilliger Drive, which in sum total are on the order of 1.6 billion dollar projects with you know on the order of 500 to 800 million dollars coming from city coffers to fund those projects
1: yeah we did see some big ticket items discussed and uh, and voted down so for example something with Horlack Park there was a motion to dif- to uh, reduce the funding for that project by 50 million that was defeated there was obviously the Lewis Farms vote that took place that failed 5 to 8 so there was some things but as you say there's some pretty big ticket items that weren't discussed another one being police to some extent. I mean, I think council had intended to not talk about police during this budget process, which is why in October they approved the funding formula for the next year. And yet we still had a whole bunch of requests from police littered throughout the capital uh, budget in particular. The part that didn't get talked about is that The previous decisions they had made around funding police this year contribute a not insignificant amount of the tax increase that people are going to pay over the next four years. Speaking of the tax increase and significance, I want to talk a bit about bike lanes and the
0: bike plan. Uh, You'll have seen by this point that we funded the bike plan for one hundred million dollars. You'll have seen this because every single news organization and counselor is drilling that forward in every comment they make. Mm -hmm. Every sentence ends with, and we funded $100 million worth of bikes. That is so insignificant in the context of this budget. In the previous episode, we said that with a capital budget, a $100 million increase in capital budget equates to around a 0.4% tax increase. This bike plan is $100 million over four years. So that means for each year of that 4.9%, 0.1% is funding this bike plan. It's such a trivially small amount, and yet it's taking up all the oxygen in the room.
1: It's really interesting because it's a trivially small amount in terms of money, but it is the number one thing that I have heard people talk about and that I'm sure you've seen online people talk about throughout this budget process. And I think it has really set the narrative for the rest of council's term and maybe beyond. The only thing that they are going to hear anytime they make a decision that somebody doesn't like is about the bike lanes. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but the $100 million for bike lanes, this is great. This is a significant achievement for bike infrastructure in the city, but it's not everything that bike proponents would have wanted, right? No, no, the bike
0: plan itself was at least a $200 million plan over eight years. So this funding, $100 million over four years, could potentially be fully funding the bike plan. They just need to commit to it again in four years. But the key thing with the bike plan is we funded $100 million for the easy stuff. We deferred all the hard, difficult decisions, the complex infrastructure for the next set of funding. While this is a win because the bar was set very low in Edmonton, this is not shooting it over the fence, getting everything we want.
1: Right. So I think this is a good a good transition for me to get into your original question which is my overall impression of the budget. And I think the bike lanes are a pretty good example of of one of the fires that they're going to have to put out. I think council left this budget process with an awful lot of fires to put out. So first of all, you know, I don't think they made anyone truly happy with this budget and maybe that's true of every budget, you know, nobody gets everything they're looking for. It's always by necessity a, a bit of a compromise, but you know, we didn't get all the climate change stuff that we probably should have. The bike plan is, you know, part of the easy stuff, not all of it. You know, they seem to sprinkle some money around to some different things without really making anybody truly happy. And, and so that's maybe not surprising. Uh, a little bit more surprising is I feel like they've left this budget process with a really broken relationship with city administration, particularly with the city manager, Andre Korbold, who has done quite a bit on his own to break the trust uh, that council might have had in him. And I think that's a fire they're going to have to deal with in the new year. They asked for sweeping cuts as part of the operating budget, $60 million in cuts over the next four years, and $240 million in additional savings that they could redirect. You know, in the face of it, that doesn't sound so bad. Like, you should be looking for some efficiencies. But I found myself agreeing with Councillor Principe, shockingly, through the discussion when she pointed out that you know, we've basically been in a program and service review for the last eight years. Like, What's different about this time? They didn't vote for a $60 million cut and here's how it's going to be different. They just said, find $60 million in cuts. And I, I can't imagine that's going to have a very positive impact on morale in administration. So that's another fire. Regional transit is another one which we're going to get into. I think that really will have an impact on our our municipal partners around the region. That's a fire they're going to have to put out. And then as you've already alluded to, I think uh, the councillors themselves calling each other out. You know, if they were pretending to be nice to one another and collaborate for the first year of this term, that's that's finished, right? That's going to be a problem. And so far, as we've talked about in previous episodes, Mayor Sohee has not been effective at bringing counsel together, driving toward consensus. And so that'll be a big challenge for him in particular over the next three years.
0: So I don't really disagree with anything you've said, but I think I have a yes and for it. Yeah. And I made this tweet after the budget came out that, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see columnists writing really hot takes that council is dysfunctional and that this budget process symbolizes a council who is unable to get their house in order. I think maybe, but is that not progress? I look back to the budget that administration proposed here, which we called milk toast status quo, a nothing burger of a budget. Yeah. I see that council has extracted through force of will and a lot of extended orders, a better budget out of it. It's funding for some climate change. It's funding for bikes. It's funding for housing and homelessness. It's these things that council campaigned on all individually. I think back to the council of four years ago, I don't think they would have done this. I think that this council is upsetting the status quo as much as they can. It's a elected body that moves slowly. And I think, yeah, they've created some fires. You can only tell the difference between bickering and infighting and modifying the status quo by looking back in hindsight. Bickering and infighting that doesn't lead to change is just infighting. But if it does lead to change, it's revolutionary. And only in hindsight can you see which was which. And I hope that in four years we're going to be looking back on this and seeing this is the point where change began to happen on our Edmonton City Council.
1: I like your optimism, Troy, with that. And I I hope that's the case. And I should just mention, I criticized the mayor there just now. And it's not only criticism I have for him because- speaking of change, and one of the things that's driving forward is the omnibus approach that he brought uh, to this two budgets, proposing a set of amendments altogether that he had previously circulated and gotten some support for uh, from his colleagues on council. Not everybody, probably, uh, even though most of the votes on those were unanimous. But that, I think, was a sign that things could change for the better, I'm you know, quite complimentary of the mayor uh, for, for bringing that approach forward because I think it had a real positive impact. They frankly would have needed another three days had he not done that <laughs> to get through the rest of the amendments. Like you said,
0: Mayor Sohi was a bit of a lightning rod in this budget by his own design. The omnibus motion was designed such that no councillor was taking a lot of heat and a lot of vitriol for individual motions. They're all coming through the chair, which was a very great change. I like that. But he was also a lightning rod in terms of Dare I call it council disrespect, undermining? I'm talking about the task force that the province of Alberta announced in the 11th hour during Edmonton City Council's budget. So much so in the 11th hour that two councillors actually left the budget meeting on one of their motions
1: that they were proposing to go do a press conference with the province. (laughs) So this is the Edmonton Public Safety and Community Response Task Force on December 13th, right in the middle of the final week budget the province announced it. And they surprised... Everyone, including the mayor, by appointing Councillor Sarah Hamilton and Councillor Tim Cartmel as two city council representatives on this task force, which the mayor was quite heated about, pointing out that council was not asked about this. They cannot speak for council because council has not voted to appoint those two representatives uh, to this task force. Council Jan's also referenced this in his closing remarks when he talked about uh, the mayor being under siege from uh, you know people in the province and others trying to undermine him and and trying to do an end run around around him. So you know he was justifiably I think pretty upset. And you and I were you know messaging throughout the budget process and I sent you a, a message when I was looking through the video for like the exact moment where you can see in the press conference Sarah Hamilton who's standing behind the podium, duck out so that she can vote by phone and then come back in. But what that means, of course, is that she had missed all of the discussion and all of the comments from her colleagues, who, by the way, did not know where they were. You can play back that council meeting and hear the clerk saying, Councillor Hamilton, are you on the line? Councillor Cartmel, I see you in the Google chat. Are you there? No response. Crickets. Like,
0: super disrespectful. This was certainly a surprise for all of council, and we heard that in Mayor Sohi's comments. But I think it is fair to say council did know where these two were at when it happened. I got a heads up about an hour before the press conference that Councillor Cartmel and Hamilton would be there. So I have to assume if I got that information, that Mayor Sohi's staff also knew it. And I think you saw it when Councillor Cartmel was discussing his uh, municipal development corporation motion, he said, hey, I'm already 20 minutes late for a personal appointment. Can we defer this to later? Do I have consent of the body? And most councillors started to say, yeah, yeah, okay. And Mayor Sohi said, no, we've got a lot of stuff to get through. We must proceed. And forced Councillor Cartmel to get on the phone. Mayor Sohi threw the shot across the bow saying, if you're going to take a shot at me, I'm taking a shot back at
1: you. Yeah, I mean, and good on him for doing that. This was at 11.55 on December 13th. That press conference started at 11, 11.30 that morning, right? So kind of happening right at the same time. Councillor Cartmel did end up voting by phone, as you say, and he was on the losing side, one of the five that voted in favor of this uh, motion he had put forward, his own motion, as you said, about the Municipal Development Corporation. There was one thing I, I was uh, quite interested in about, you know, it got me thinking, Troy, a little bit uh, about how that gets recorded, like what shows up in the record. When they're missing. And it was really interesting because at some point during the meeting, the clerk talked about this and said that they're only required to record a reason when a counselor abstains. So if they abstain from voting, they must record the reason why. But if they're absent, Whether it's with or without notice, then they don't have to record why. They just have to record that they're absent, which feels like a little bit of a loophole. Like we should record why somebody's absent. And I get that you could just say personal reasons or whatever, but somehow it seems material to know That they weren't there for these votes they missed because they were off doing this provincial task force without getting approval from their colleagues to to be the representatives there.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the end run around council. You already alluded to if this was a legitimate process, the province would have talked to Edmonton City Council, and Edmonton City Council, like with committees, would have selected a representative that could speak for the body. This didn't happen in this case. It was two councillors, Councillors Cartmell and Sarah Hamilton, who I don't think anyone could argue at this point are the most UCP friendly on Edmonton City Council, at least in regards to this task force. Both have consistently been strong supporters of the police. And this task force is ostensibly about policing away poverty and homelessness. Uh, It's got a heavy emphasis on treatment, potentially even involuntary treatment. So that is police forcibly putting people into drug treatment, after picking them up off the street. That could be a significant point of contention with this plan. Chief Dale McPhee is sitting on this committee. He has said that it's going to be a lot of preventing open-air drug use through policing, through enforcement, through the pointy stick. I can think of no two councillors other than Sarah Hamilton and T. Carmel that could get behind that sort of approach based on their previous comments and their previous votes in regards to policing and the police commission. So to say they were hand-picked by the government, is true both in the general sense of feelings, but also in the quite literal sense. They were hand-picked for this committee without any consultation of their peers. And I want to make another note of Councillor Tim Cartmel, who, for him, this is becoming something of a pattern of behavior. This isn't the only mayor. He's done an end run around to subvert the mayor's authority and council's authority. If you recall, back when Don Iveson was mayor, council had passed a priority-based budget approach. So there was a list of capital projects that were evaluated for alignment with city goals. Twilliger Drive, specifically, was not highly prioritized based on its alignment with city goals. Tim Cartmell ducked out of a council meeting at one point to go to a provincial announcement where the province, completely throwing out city council's jurisdiction on this matter, decided to fund Terwilliger Drive improvements. And Councillor Tercart spoke at the lectern, not a podium. A podium is something you stand on. A lectern is something you stand <laughs> at. He talked about how excited he was to fund this initiative that city council voted not to fund. He completely usurped city council's authority and took the rug out from under their feet. And he's done this just again with this new task force. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, Shame on me. And I think council has to be thinking that. Any credence they might have given to councillors, Hamilton and Carmel, for "Mm, maybe they're just looking out for the best interests of the city, I think they have to really stop and think, am I being naive? Are they looking out for the best interests of the city here, or are they looking out for the best interests of themselves at the expense of our elected body?
1: Yeah, I think the uh, the, the what they're looking out for is pretty clear. It's not for anything other than their own personal interest in this case. And uh, you heard colleagues allude to that in their closing remarks, right? Several of them would reference the task force or provincial announcement. They wouldn't necessarily call them out by name, but you got this feeling from several of the other councillors around the table that they're put out by this, right? They had no notice about this. They didn't know this was happening. And they see this as, as you say, a really shot across the bow at this diplomatic body that they're supposed to be
0: a part of. If I was on city council, I might in the new year be taking a hard look at if this councillor does not respect council's body and delegated authority to elect a representative, should we be looking at her other appointments
1: and revoking them. The same for Councillor Tim Cartmell. Yeah, or more simply, and I think what could happen is they'll take a look at their policy around uh, council appointments and strengthen it. Because I had to read through it this week, and it's not super clear that you can't serve on another committee without being appointed by council. At least I was unable to find it. And I think that's something they could make much more explicit by simply revising that policy, which, you know, would look less like they're calling out a particular reprimanding a particular councillor and just strengthening their governance. One thing you did send me uh, during the budget chat was a reference to a line in the MGA uh, alluding to councils' responsibilities, the first line. Yeah, the first line under under the responsibilities of cou- and duties of councillors which is to uh, consider the welfare and interests of the municipality as a whole and to bring to council's attention anything that would promote the welfare or interests of the municipality. So they both put out statements, Hamilton and uh, and Carmel, after the uproar about this. And in hers, at least, Councillor Hamilton did say, you know, I did inform the mayor's office uh, about this. To which I responded, "Well, well, then why was he so surprised? Which she didn't reply to. And some other folks suggested, well, politics. So maybe, maybe both of them are playing politics on this. Still, like this is pretty clearly in the MGA. A duty you have is to look out for the welfare of the municipality and to keep your council colleagues informed. And it feels, it seems like, both, they failed to do both of those things in this case. They, they said, both of them in their statements, we should highlight that they would not pass up any opportunity to, you know, work on behalf of their city. And they see this as an opportunity to advance the interests of, of council and of the city of Edmonton. And I did actually interview uh, Susan McGee this week, who's the CEO of Homeward Trust, who is also a member of the task force. And she had a similar, you know, kind of take. She said that, why would I pass up an opportunity to do this? I, she had a very... Matter of fact, practical perspective, actually, which is that over her 30 year career, like there's always new bodies, new reports, there's reconvening and revisiting stuff. And for her, it's just part of the work. So I think maybe we could cut them a little slack and say they really did seem like they wanted to take this opportunity to uh, look out for what the city and council have been looking for, which is support around housing and things like that. But as you've already explained, there's lots of reasons to question that as well. Yeah, Susan McGee, of course, is not a politician. Hamilton and Cartmel are.
0: Exactly. So I'm not inclined to cut them any slack. And the final reason I'm not going to cut them any slack is because they specifically voted against the budgets. Both councillors, Hamilton and Cartmel, proposed increases to the budget and then voted against both the capital and operating budgets. What we saw in this council and this budget looked a lot like party politics. It looked like there was a clear divide between the left and we'll call it the right. If I'm sitting in Mayor Sohee's chair and I'm seeing two councillors saying, we want to bring UCP party politics to Edmonton City Council, my response is,
1: okay, then let's party. You're on the losing side. <laughs> well, that's a dangerous game, I think, right? Be careful what you wish for. Well, let's just give a little bit more detail about that. I tweeted about the uh, the capital budget already about this. So 9-4, Cartmel, Hamilton, Principe, and Rice opposed. Those are the same four, by the way, that voted against $100 million for bike lanes. And I looked through all of the amendments, and just four of the 60-plus amendments that were made four of them were decrease amendments proposed by one of these four councilors and all of them were soundly defeated you know 211 310 210 310 they did not get any support for the things that they proposed and the operating budget was pretty similar there was only a handful of motions to decrease that this group brought forward two of them passed one was defeated another about the arts council was defeated they had a pretty poor record of both proposing cuts, which several of the other councillors called them out for, you know, doing the work of looking at opportunities to cut costs if you're going to be concerned about tax increases, and then in terms of getting support for it, to the point where in her closing remarks, explaining why she was voting against the budget, Councillor Principe basically threw her toys out of the pram and said, well, none of my amendments were supported, so why would I support this budget? I mean, talk about ego. In closing remarks as well, uh, Councillor Sarah Hamilton specifically brought up this idea
0: that she mentioned there had been discussion. (laughs) I wonder who was discussing this, that certain councillors were running up the total on the budget with the intention of voting against it. And she said, I had never intended to vote against this budget. And I looked at every point for cost saving but I did run up this budget and I'm voting against it now.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Councillor Carmel basically said the same thing. He's like, I really genuinely was in the moment on every vote. Every vote I made was in the moment about the merits of that program. (laughs) It was a bit funny considering the amount of criticism they got from their colleagues who all knew that these no votes were were about to come. Well, let's jump into some of the decisions that were made in
0: this budget. And let's start with, I think, the biggest decision. Um, Maybe not in terms of dollar impact, but in terms of political council impact and coverage, and that's regional transit. There was a motion from Councillor Andrew Knack to fund $13 million for the EMTSC, the Edmonton Municipal... Metropolitan.
1: Metropolitan Regional Transit Commission. Transit Service Commission. (laughs) i mean it has all those it has all the right words just you know a collection is, of words you don't have to know anymore troy because it's dead now it is dead uh council voted not to fund
0: this this of course has been something that is eight to ten years in the making i think it's fair to call it don ivison's legacy if Zoe so, was don ivison's golden child uh well <laughs> he's rebelled, he's emancipated now,
1: yeah, I mean, we interviewed Don after uh or at the end of his term as out and and he he said that the thing that the next mayor should prioritize is regional diplomacy, and obviously he had made region building a priority of his entire term. It's not surprising that he would say that on the, on the way out, mayor, so he, I wouldn't say has been super vocal about the region, he hasn't been opposed to it on this particular issue, I think he's just dead wrong here, so. As you said, the vote, the the plan to fund it, thirteen million, was defeated five to eight, and you know several of the councillors, and in particular, Councillor Hamilton and Councillor Carmel, talked about the dangerous precedent that this might set. Sarah Hamilton called it the death of regionalism. Councillor Carmel said that trust is lost. We've lost the trust of the collective communities around us. The mayor said, you know, I take exception to the notion that this is going to damage our relationships. I think he's wrong. I think it has already and will continue to until they figure out how to, uh, you know, turn this around. I mean, Kathy Heron, the mayor of Saint Albert, tweeted almost uh, right after. I'm heartbroken. Approximately eight years of my life working on this. We entered into agreements in good faith and lack of understanding of the long-term benefits was its downfall. She's neglecting to point out in her tweet here that her own council is going to be revisiting this again in January because there has been some folks on her council who are also unhappy about the impact of this. But... When they passed their budget, they approved a higher tax increase in St. Albert because they chose to fund this. And for Edmonton to not go forward and to not fund this, I think, is a a real issue that is going to continue to rear its head. And it could have a real knock-on effect in, in all of the other ways that Edmonton works with its regional partners. So it's not just about transit. There's economic development with Edmonton Global. There's this uh, shared investment stuff that they've been working on. There's uh, you know, land use planning and the agricultural master plan. There's lots of different connections, obviously. And to me, it's inevitable that this happens. And most of the folks at council, when they were talking about this, referenced that. They said, like, eventually this is gonna happen. We're gonna have a region. It doesn't make sense to have all of these little transit systems. So why they wouldn't have continued down that path and, and figured out a way to turn what the progress that had already been made into what they were ultimately looking for, if they, if they think it's bureaucratic or bloated, like how do we improve that rather than to start over just is, is shocking. So
0: let's talk a little bit about the why, because you're right. I don't think there was anyone at the council table who said, I think the region should go at it alone. Um, No one was saying, I don't want regional collaboration. What was at issue here was a matter of this particular plan, because the vote was not to abolish regional transit, the vote was to fund the EMTSC for $13 million. Mayor Sohi released a tweet thread after the vote, justifying some of his decision to vote against. And he made reference to, you know, there's already existing regional collaboration with Sherwood Park, who wasn't even going to join the EMTSC, and they're going to be increasing route collaboration. St. Albert, of course, already has decent regional route collaboration with the city of Edmonton, what the EMTSC would have done is put all the regional transit systems under one umbrella. So you wouldn't get on a St. Albert bus or a Devon bus or a Scrove bus. You'd get on an EMTSC bus. Of course, in the city of Edmonton, you would still get on an ETS bus because the merging of Edmonton's transit system into the EMTSC is quite a massive undertaking. And mm-hmm. that was going to happen after. So the big thing at issue here was Mayor Sohe said. About 40% of this $13 million was going to administration of the MTSC. It wasn't going to routes. It wasn't going to additional service delivery. It was going into paying a CEO of the MTSC, paying bureaucrats at the MTSC, all of which we have at ETS. It's duplicating some of our system. The original Ernst & Young report that was proposing savings for the EMTSC when the EMTSC was initially approved and talked about, proposed savings significantly quicker than later reports. And I think this was highlighted early in the year when council was looking to pull back from regional transit. They were looking to say, hey, you know, there's a lot of regional routes that are coming in and duplicating existing City of Edmonton routes. We want to run the City of Edmonton sides at higher frequency, give higher service delivery, But let's not run as many EMTSC routes. We can have some transfers into the ETS system. And the regional partners soundly rejected that plan. This plan would have saved, I heard, in council on the order of $2 million over the EMTSC plan. So if you're sitting on city council and you're seeing this is a long-term investment that definitely won't see savings within this term by any number of reports, would perhaps decrease service levels for Edmontonians specifically in service of the broader region and has an administrative organization that is preventing quick transit changes in service of efficiency and better route delivery. I don't know if I'm sitting on council and I'm seeing all those things laid out before me, I might say we're in a tight budget. We're already fighting against things. I don't want to spend money to reduce service for Edmontonians. And I think that discussion, that frame is why we saw the vote totals that we did, you know, with counselors, Stevenson, and Salvador, and Jans voting against regional transit, and the quote-unquote conservatives, Hamilton, Cartmel, of course, Andrew Knack, Principe, voting in favor. It seemed reversed of what one would have expected for that vote, and that's the context around it. This vote was not about abolishing regionality, despite what some councillors may have said in their comment. This vote was about this specific plan. Is this the right time for this specific plan?
1: Sure. And I I think your explanation makes a lot of sense there. I just think that they are missing the forest for the trees on this. And I think I'm going to make a bold statement here. Several of the new councillors are uninformed about the region. I heard a few times throughout the budget, shouldn't Edmonton Global be doing that? Like, whose responsibility is that? Like, don't they already do this? Like, they didn't know what these regional organizations that they're shareholders in do in some cases. And the reason I say it's missing the forest for the trees is show me how this is going to work, guys. If the plan, the alternative is to basically strong arm all of the other regional municipalities into acquiescing and having ETS take it over, which is the long-term objective here, how is that going to work? The EMTSC plan wasn't about cost savings. It wasn't necessarily even about the most efficient approach to do it. It was about the palatable way to get to the next step on this regional plan. I mean, I think the long-term goal in either scenario is going to be, there's one that runs it and it's going to be based in Edmonton because we're by far the biggest part of the region. But I don't think you get there by just hoping and wishing or or trying to strong-arm municipalities into saying, well, just come be part of ETS. That totally eliminates any sort of sense of individuality or autonomy that they have. And and that sort of strategic approach seemed to be really missing from this discussion. I totally understand we're in a a climate of inflation. Maybe some of that context has changed. How will this look to Edmontonians? Although, you know, you look at opinion uh, surveys about this and a significant percentage of people support the idea of regional transit. But, you know, I can understand where they're coming from. I just think it's not very strategic, and and I think it's going to have long-lasting impact as a result. Council, of course, has
0: been accused of being unstrategic in the past, and this has been with the demolition of the Coliseum, which, when it was decommissioned, was pitted at $10 million to demolish the Coliseum. We pay about a million and a half every year to keep the lights on and keep some security. Now, it's going to cost $35 million to demolish the Coliseum, but we are going to do it
1: in 2025. Oh, and thank goodness. I mean, this is something that should have happened a long time ago. It is shocking that it's taken this long for council to finally do this because the cost is just going to continue to go up. I think Ashley Salvador, Councillor Salvador, was one of the the primary proponents of this at council and talked about how, um, you know, we've got to get this done because it's only going to continue to go up in costs. She's like, even if we can't afford it right now, like, It's better to pay for it now than it would be in the future. Uh, In addition to paying those uh, year-over-year costs, as you point out, the mayor voted against this, you know, basically saying we don't have the money for it. But, you know, I think it's a smart thing to do. This is the decision. It's not like there's a question here about whether or not this is the right approach. Council and previous councils have already agreed that this has to go for the good of that community, you know, to allow us to move forward with the exhibition lands redevelopment, all of the things that they've already approved. It's just a matter of execution. And the sooner we get that execution done, the less expensive it's going to be. For the good
0: of a 15-minute community over in the West End, a motion to reduce Lewis Farms funding down to $185 million was defeated, five to eight. Uh, Councilor Jans moved to reduce the scope of the rec center out in the far west side of the city. But uh, council decided, no, we're going to stay the course and we're going to build the project as originally designed.
1: Not a huge surprise. I mean, I think it would have been... Pretty shocking if they had cut uh, Lewis Farms even a little bit, you know, throughout this budget cycle. Just given the amount of airtime that it's received in the last four years and how difficult it has been to get to this point, we should be debating, you know, whether or not the plan we have is the right one. And you know, how we can make it more successful by building the LRT right to it and all those kinds of things. But not a huge surprise to me that they chose not to to cut that funding, although I will say five to eight is a bit closer than I thought it might be.
0: I should issue a brief correction. It's not funding quite as original design. They did vote to uh, reduce the size of a diving tank.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's right.
0: As original as one could hope for in this budget climate. Yeah. Also, uh, preserving its original design is the high level bridge, which will not get an upper deck at least. Well, we'll not get a upper deck pedestrian linear park, at least in
1: this budget. High level line is
0: dead, except maybe not.
1: Yeah. So this is one of the major capital budget amendments that uh, the mayor brought forward. So he proposed and council agreed to cut $70 million from the high level bridge rehabilitation project which is a significant amount of money. So you know, I think we'll still have to spend some time understanding exactly what that uh, cut accounts for. But as you point out, upper deck is certainly one of those things. And so it appeared that high-level line was going to be dead. But then we heard from Councillor Stevenson that what they approved actually does include a design for high level line, and so that there's an opportunity in the future, if funding becomes available, for high level line to be approved. So, you know, they'll have different check-ins on this project. They obviously also have the spring and fall budget adjustments, and then the the annual uh, budget uh, adjustments that they might make. And so, it's possible that they could choose to fund this in the future if that doesn't get approval at the time then, you know, the scaled back project without the upper deck will will take place. So it's a bad thing for high level line and that they don't have the certainty that, that they thought they had for that project. Um, but I guess it could have been worse. There were some questions at council specifically
0: around, okay, if we're rehabilitating the uh, bridge, are we doing the infrastructure work necessary to support the upper deck? And administration's answer was no. They would be rehabilitating the high level bridge in a way that wouldn't prevent high-level line from happening in the future, but they're not preemptively building top-deck supports such that it could be a pedestrian space. They're just doing some design work. Uh, The East Sidewalk, the $20 million widening of the East Sidewalk on the high-level bridge, that is going forward. That was approved. We didn't get an additional $20 million cut there. So that uh, will continue to be an improvement to active transportation around the city during the high-level bridge rehabilitation There were a whole slew of motions in this budget. One where we were told that because there was a funding formula, we weren't going to be debating police increases. Two, increase the police budget. Now, some of these came (laughs) from the Edmonton police. Some of these also came from Councillor Principe, who proposed initially one amendment to just basically give police all the money and the clerks decided, hey, you know, you should separate this out into four or five different amendments because it's basically for different things, all of which are giving police all the money. I'd say in some total, we rejected some of Councillor Principe's amendments,
1: but we did give police pretty well all the money. I mean, all of Councillor Principe's motions were defeated, actually. (laughs) So she (laughs) was not very successful at getting people to uh, come on side for her. But the one capital budget amendment that stood out to me Was to decrease funding for police IT by $4.3 million. So, not to give them more money, but just to reduce the amount that was in the budget already. Council decided not to fund all of the IT projects that administration was looking for. And so, you know, maybe it makes sense to try and cut a little bit of the police IT funding as well. So, this motion, $4.3 million cut to their uh, infrastructure for IT, failed in a 6 7 vote. And I wanted to highlight that one just because, you know, in the discussion about this, we heard a lot of the same things that we've heard before. This is money that goes to police for something they say they need, but there's no way for us to know that they actually will spend it on that. Will it actually go toward police IT, the projects that they said? we don't know. And a 6-7 vote along the lines you would pretty much expect, uh, with the mayor perhaps uh, uh, being the swing vote on that, was a bit disappointing. The other uh, police vote that I wanted to mention was from the operating budget, actually. Uh, and this was a motion put forward by uh, Councillor Andrew Knack to take $3.2 million of the funding from the Healthy Streets Operations Centre and to change the source of it. So that's all that happened this, this past 8-5. to five. But instead of that money coming from the community safety and well-being fund uh, that the city created as part of that previous decisions in that strategy, it will now come from the FSR, the Financial Stabilization Reserve. So they didn't get rid of this funding. They didn't clarify necessarily whether or not it's in the budget. They simply moved the source for that funding. Yeah, the interesting part with that motion when we talked about
0: the police funding formula increase, Counselor Knack had indicated he had intended to basically claw back the Healthy Street Operations Center funding in light of approving the formula. Many watching council had said, hey, just an FYI, you're pre-approving police funding increases and then deferring the decrease down the line. Every other time we've done that, the funding decrease hasn't actually materialized. So be cautious there. And it's like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. It's fine. This is this is going to work out great. And, you know, after consulting with legal at a meeting, Matt, did it work out great?
1: <laughs> no, it did not work out great. So Councillor uh, Joanne Wright brought forward this amendment, actually, to reduce funding for police by 4.4 in 2023 and 5.8 million in 2024. So this would effectively remove Healthy Streets Operations Center from the budget. And immediately, immediately, I think it was Council Principe, might have been Councillor Hamilton, asked, is this in order? Is this motion in order? And they had a discussion about it. The clerk said, this one's going to require a coffee break. They did that. Then they went in private. And then they didn't get back to this for a couple of hours. And when they got back to it, she withdrew the motion. So whatever happened in the interim there, whatever happened in the private meeting, you know, ultimately meant, meant that this uh, this motion did not even get voted on. That wasn't the only motions in order, Snafu. Uh,
0: Councillor Rice had a, well, very extended debate with the clerks and the chair and a challenge of the chair. And, and eventually her motions were ruled not to be in order. But this is par for the course for Councillor Rice. I, what was she even talking about, Troy? What was her motion that she wanted to make or her amendment? Do you know? To be honest, Mac, I don't know. <laughs> it is very hard to know what Councillor Rice is talking about at any given time, probably because she doesn't know what she's talking about. And I thought it was exceptionally funny when councillors were reading their motions in. So at the start of this budget process, we spent, you know, a good couple hours of just councillors reading all the text on the piece of paper because yeah. they've got to read the motion into the record. Yeah. When Councillor Rice got up to read her motions into the record... She first said, what I'm reading differs from what's on the piece of paper. So deal with that, clerks. Um, and I'm going to start reading now. And the clerks stopped and like, okay, Counselor Rice, can you please tell us what number you're talking about? She's like, it's not a number on your paper because I'm inventing these motions on the fly. <laughs> and there was a snafu back and forth between the clerks before eventually they worked it out and she got it into the record. But where every other counselor quickly read their motions that they had prepared into the record, Councillor Rice took an inordinate amount of time to read these nonsensical motions that have arbitrary changes into the record. And this was a precursor for how the rest of the budget would be.
1: <laughs> it was like almost an hour of time, I think, spent on this. And I've uh, just looked it up, Troy. it was a motion around uh, bus fleet and equipment rehab and replacement. She wanted to reduce that by first $16 million, then $13 million. There's a question about it. It doesn't matter. It failed. 2 to 11.
0: Yeah, and this isn't the only time that it's failed and wasted our time. Later on in the budget, Councillor Rice had put forward an amendment that she had proposed, and she was the only one asking questions of administration on her own amendment. Now, recall, if she had questions about her own planned amendments, she could have submitted them as written questions to administration prior to the budget. But she finishes her round of questions and then moves another round to ask five more minutes of questions of administration on her own motion. At which point <laughs> Councillor Aaron Pouquet clicks on and says, I'd like to speak now, and Mayor Sohi recognizes him, and he's like, I'll call the question. Now, what this means is he's saying, I want to limit debate. I'm saying, I want to vote on this now. Process-wise, this requires a immediate vote and a two-thirds majority to approve limiting of debate, at which point the vote would immediately happen. Unfortunately, they didn't quite meet that threshold of limiting debate. They did have a majority in favor of limiting debate, but they didn't quite meet that two-thirds. And then counselor took another five minutes to, to speak on her motion before voting for it and, you know, getting obliterated. She probably had Councillor at <laughs> Principe voting with her. But this was just another example of Councillor Rice wasting Council's time. If we want to talk about why this went so long, every time I clicked onto the meeting, I was rolling my eyes because Councillor Rice almost always was talking and she didn't have prepared questions. She didn't have questions that made sense and she really stumbled through her job and what her job entails. You talked about rookie counselors not knowing what was going on. I think there's no better example of this than Counselor Rice. And I think Council really needs to take a hard look at, is this process working? Because Mayor Sohe was very collaborative. He, he knew that Counselor Rice had a right to be there and that she needed to represent her constituents, but she was just doing it very, very poorly. And it was inhibiting the flow of the meeting, and it was inhibiting the success and the efficacy of the entire body. And that's got to be exceptionally frustrating for council, who also knows basically none of her amendments got support anyway.
1: Right. I mean, there was other ways that this was a more difficult process than it needed to be. My favorite quote from the last couple of days was from Counselor Rutherford, who said, I'm contemplating an amendment to my amendment to the amendment, <laughs> <laughs> which is not usually allowed, but of course they... And that wasn't allowed, of course. Uh, you know, they they do relax rules somewhat for the budget meeting to allow it to proceed a little bit more smoothly. But the clerk was like, no, we're not going to go that far. <laughs> so there's <laughs> lots of these things that, you know, potentially led to uh, them needing to extend orders on on multiple days and add full days. They added all of Thursday, which wasn't originally in the plan, for instance. And in her closing comments, actually, uh, Councillor Karen Tang spoke quite a bit about this. You know, she said the council was drowning in information and wondered about if there could be a more iterative, responsive approach used in the future. Um, I think I heard one of the counsellors even mention like maybe this multi-year budgeting thing isn't the right way to go because there's a lot of information that you know both needs to be prepared and then considered and read through a four-year budget. And I would be surprised if every councillor read every line of every budget, because there's just so much information in there. Or if they did, maybe they did. It's hard to retain that much information, right? And to then have a, a meaningful conversation about it. So I, I think we might see some continued changes to council's process for future years. I mean, they won't have to do a four-year budget process now for another four years, of course. But maybe even in the uh, the adjustments that happen each year, they'll try to find a way to streamline that. There's a lot to assess in the budget.
0: But of course, there's even more to assess when you're talking about things that aren't necessarily city jurisdiction. Then you have to jump into the provincial budget, provincial legislation. You have to consider so much more information. And of course, council did that a lot during this budget. We heard a through line, even in Councillor Paquette's closing comments, that basically half of what council added into this budget was picking up deferred provincial responsibility. And one of those examples, of course, is the funding for the municipal drug response.
1: Yeah, this project, Municipal Drug Poisoning Response, was proposed by Councillor Jans and it uh, passed 10 to 3 with just Cartmel, Principe and Rice opposed. Uh, This is funding of $25,000 for one department, $350,000 for another department. Some of it's ongoing, some of it's not. Essentially, this is, as the municipality, we are going to put some money into this opioid crisis that is happening because the province is not coming to the table at the level that they need to. And this part of the meeting, I think, was where we saw the most emotion from Councillor Paquette in particular, you know, really talking about how frustrating it is to continually have to discuss as a city council what they can do about this problem that is not within their jurisdiction and without getting the support of the province in order to do that. And I think it was exacerbated this week because of the task force that was announced. And so, you know, we heard quite a lot of impassioned uh, statements by councillors throughout the entire budget process about dealing with things that the province is not. But this one stood out in particular as an example. And and he obviously supported this and and most of council supported this. And I think that reflects that most of council don't want to see people die on our streets. And if they're going to spend money on all the other things they're going to spend money on, we can put a little bit of money into this to make uh, things a little bit better in our city. That was, of course, a through line in some of the feedback to the budget. We saw many a
0: comment on a news site saying, we can spend $100 million for bike lanes, but people are still homeless. And we've talked about this before, how that misses the point. Counselors really hammered home how much that misses the point. Uh, Councillor Paquette had a very well retweeted and shared thread, essentially talking about how bike lanes are climate action, bike lanes are poverty action. Bike lanes are a component of the solution. And that council is looking at this holistically. Of course, there's only so much that council... Can do. And not all of it was successful. One of the things council
1: attempted to do was cut funding for the DEI, but that narrowly failed. Yeah, there's so many moments in a budget like this, Troy, that we could highlight. But, you know, this one stood out to me as well. This was Council Rutherford, Erin Rutherford, who put this forward. She proposed cutting $250,000 on an ongoing basis to eliminate this program called Expanding Diversity and Inclusion. So I think it was, you know, in question here is like four four staff members or something like that. And it was a really interesting discussion because she was really hammering administration about this. And to the point that administration kind of felt a little standoffish about it. Like, well, we told you what it is. Like we have nothing else to say <laughs> was kind of the response. And, and, and Aaron Rutherford was like, surely, surely tell me we don't have only four people in the entire organization who are working on diversity and inclusion. And then they had to spend all this time, the councillors who who tried to, to vote in favour of this, defending that by cutting this funding, it doesn't mean that we don't support diversity and inclusion. We, of course, want an equitable, diverse workforce and city, you know, on and on and on and on. And we heard Councillor Jans chime in on this conversation and say, this is an example of administration not listening to council's direction. We asked you for... You know, a budget that was reflective of the time that we find ourselves, inflationary pressures, and you're adding people. I can't support this. You can't add people to administration when we're trying to find cuts here. I mean, ultimately, it failed. It was a very close vote. It was one of the closest uh, of the entire budget at 6-7. Again, Councillor Sohi voted against that, along with Cartmel, Hamilton, Paquette, Principe, Rice, and Stevenson. So it was close. But, you know, it was one of those interesting ones because it, it really highlighted this as we've talked about since the beginning of our podcast, this sort of challenge that council and administration have with one another, and sometimes there's a healthy tension there, and uh, and other times I think there's maybe not. And I will say also in listening to this part of the meeting that. It wasn't instilled with a great amount of confidence by the city manager about uh, his responses to to how this is going to continue to go throughout the organization, even with even if this funding hadn't passed.
0: And I think that's the story that we will be experiencing going forward in these next four years. You talked about some of the fires, and one of the major fires is going to be Andre Corbald, the city manager, who is a former uh, deputy minister uh, with the government of Alberta. He came in from another province. He's a former general in the army. I think. Looking at the demographics of our council and what we wanted in a city manager, I think it's fair to say he was not our first choice, but we hired him during the pandemic. The hiring pool was significantly limited, and I think Alberta's COVID response would have also limited people who might have been the superstar city manager that we wanted coming in. So with that light and with his... I'll frankly call it abysmal performance over the past couple of weeks, especially during this budget process. I think council has to be asking, do we get someone new? Do we terminate the city manager? Of course, there's a funding cost associated with that as well. Uh, City manager is pretty well paid and council is strapped for cash. But that's going to be one of the discussions
1: going forward, I'm sure. Yeah, and of course, we still have Adam Lachlan, who was the interim city manager throughout most of the pandemic and who... I think council was quite complimentary about who's still in administration and, you know, is a potential person they could tap should they choose to make a drastic decision like that. I think at this point, we should uh, just quickly say, Troy, that it's really easy for us to... Uh, to get on here and criticize everybody administration counselors <laughs> whomever and uh, and we don't mean to underestimate the amount of work that goes into this whole budget process and the amount of stress that it creates and uh, you know the amount of inputs that come from all different directions and at the end of the day i truly believe that the vast majority of the folks working on this whether uh, which, whichever side of the table they're on are doing it with the best of intentions that doesn't mean we can't do our jobs here troy and criticize what needs to be criticized and call it out as appropriate but you know um Just want to have that little uh, acknowledgement in there as well. Yeah. And I know city staff listen to this podcast and basically
0: anytime we work with city staff, I don't know about you, but I've always had an extremely positive interaction. I find city staff to be exceptionally helpful, sometimes slow because they're overworked and they let us know about that. But when we talk about problems with the city of Edmonton, it's almost always high level directional. We need to set the course and we're upset with the steering of the course and the accountability of Meeting those goals. It's never, hey, Bob from accounting really messed up on those numbers. It's just never really the problems that we have. Yeah, for sure. So I think one thing that I'd like to do this budget has been sort of the first big outing of a lot of the new counselors, and most of our council is new, fresh faces. So I think it's useful to talk about some like highlights and lowlights, maybe report card, maybe that's a fair thing. I think during this budget, there have been a couple standout things. We've already mentioned Jennifer Rice has been my low point of this budget. I think it is galling the lack of preparation. And you talked about everyone trying to do their best during budget. City staff prepare for hours and hours. We have huge delegations showing up at meetings. Like it is hugely expensive to run Mm -hmm. city council budget meetings and the waste of a counselor showing up so grossly unprepared like that's been galling on me in the past couple of weeks. But on the plus side, I have to say no surprise. Rookie of the year in my mind goes to counselor Ashley Salvador. I think there's no better example than the bike plan. This was something that, you know, we haven't been able to fund for four decades. I can think back to the 80s where we had a bike plan that was going to cover the whole city and never got funded. Councillor Salvador stepped in, had a mandate from her constituents, really worked through committee to get funding accelerated and approved, and then truly shepherded these motions through council. And what we got is something that I'm shocked that we got $100 million, basically fully funding for four years, the bike plan. That's incredible. The other shout out I'd like to give, I've been so impressed both in the past year and in this budget process with Joanne Wright, councillor for Spomitapi uh, of the former poem of Mobanga. Counselor Wright during the election was an unknown quantity to me. I did not, I had not heard of her. I did not think she was like exceptionally qualified to be a counselor. Like I didn't see a huge backlog of really strong advocacy, uh, though that was just because she had done it silently and, you know, within the community. But oh goodness, Joanne Wright's ability to say simply and directly, well, what's the actual effect of this? What's the cost? And to make sensible decisions, like I think to the bike plan, you know, Joanne Wright in Spomatopi, way in the far south of the city, she and her constituents are not going to directly massively benefit from the bike plan. But she was a strong advocate and support because she said, look, my colleagues are telling me how important this is, how important this is to the constituents. And we need to think broadly as a city and support this. And she really advocated even going as so far as to put a motion on the table to limit the amount That we spend on consultation on the bike plan to 2% of the budget. This is something that specifically her ward of suburban nights, they often consult bike lanes to death and to have that holistic city view and just in plain language, really support and help her colleagues out. I've endlessly applaud Joanne Wright. She's someone that I discounted early on and time and time again, she's proven my initial assessment Absolutely, hundred percent wrong, and I couldn't be happier about it.
1: Yeah, I'll give uh, I'll give a shout out to her as well. She also throughout this budget process did an excellent job as the deputy chair, so or deputy For mayor. Sure. So she would take the chair whenever the mayor had to speak or was out of the room or whatever. And you know, I think she handled that exceptionally well. So that was great to see. I'll give uh, two nods, one up and one down. So you know, Councillor Principe and I, I think have very different. Views on a lot of things. I mean, shocking to me that she wanted to cut over a million dollars from the Edmonton Arts Council to put it toward grass trimming. Like, I just flabbergasted by those kinds of things. That failed, by the way, both of those things. Uh, So, you know, there's that, but it was more, you know, the way that she approaches the work and the sort of comments she made at the end about how she didn't feel like she got any support from her colleagues. I think that says more about the way that she comes to counsel rather than it does say anything about her colleagues. So I've been, I guess, continually disappointed by her performance. And then a, a positive one I would like to, to just mention is Councillor Erin Rutherford, who, you know, at times in her first term so far has been up and down for me. Like she's, made some questionable statements or asked some questionable things. But throughout this budget process, whether you agreed with her or not, and you can't agree with everything because she was busy, she did a lot. She did the work. It was clear that she had prepared, is clear that she had actually gone through and, and tried to find a way to balance increases with cuts, to try to make sensible cuts, to ask intelligent questions. I thought she did a really exceptional job uh, throughout the whole budget process. So
0: we've passed a budget. We've got uh... Five percent coming up for the next four years.
1: Yeah, and let me just jump in on the five percent, Troy. So, five percent is a lot compared to the previous few years. But let's not forget that that was a pandemic, and we cut significantly in order to get to you know one point nine zero percent, really low tax increases. And you heard some of the councillors talking about this, councillor Salvador, uh, a few others that you know artificially low tax rates could not continue. I think a lot of people will look at 5% and say, oh my goodness, that is so much larger than what it was in 2021 or 2020. But that's not reality. You know, those were very different years for lots of different reasons. And it's true that there's inflationary pressures right now and everybody is feeling the pinch of that a little bit. But I think 5% is a pretty reasonable number to end up at, both for Edmonton itself as well as looking around at other municipalities across the province and the, the rates that they've landed on and for what council chose to fund through this 5%. So I'm comfortable with that. I know there will be lots of folks out there who want to see that smaller a very smaller subset of people who will maybe have been comfortable with that being higher, but I think that's a decent place to end up. And Troy, it's at this point where I should mention, I think I won the Wheel of Fortune thing, right?
0: Uh, it's Prices right rules, but I was gonna oh, say- sorry, i price said, is
1: right, yeah, yeah. I said 5.6%, I went over, I do lose, you're right.
0: <laughs> I'll take that one small win. The final note I wanna say on the tax increase is, 5% is not 5%. The tax bill you get from the city, 30% of that is the education property tax component. So your city portion is going to be going up 5% or just under 5%. Yeah, The province still has to set that education tax portion. That could decrease um, because we don't want to fund schools. That could increase because we do want to fund schools. <laughs> oh, that was a good Danielle Smith joke right there. <laughs> but the actual amount of your property tax bill, make sure when you're Posting on Twitter saying, oh, my God, I'm going to pay so much next year. You just multiply by the city portion. Let's use the right numbers when we're talking about the increase. It's not your full property tax bill. That will be determined uh,
1: after the provincial budget is finalized uh, early next year. As uh, Councillor Aaron Paquette pointed out, this is a fluid thing. We're going to have a spring adjustment, a fall adjustment. The rates are going to change. Potentially, they changed over the last four years dramatically from the original plan. Uh, so this is not set in stone. And and we will see changes over the next four years. Smack. This was a
0: long episode. Uh, we were very busy. Uh the past couple of weeks, putting this together. But if you're a busy business owner with with more meetings than hours in a day, you're calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Yeah, we've reached the end. It's time for an ad. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life and disability coverage online anytime on any device. It makes it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, you can head to ab.bluecross.com. Ca. Whew, that was a lot of stuff about budget, Troy. There were people on Twitter requesting two hours, and sorry, I'm not going to talk about budget for two hours. <laughs>
1: Find another podcast. <laughs> what you can do is subscribe to The Pulse from Tapper at which we publish every weekday. Uh, one of the great things about budget is that it c- seeds An inordinate amount of questions, things that we will be following up on over the next several months and into, you know, well into 2023. So if you want to keep up to date on all of those things, as well as what council's up to in a normal week, not a budget week, you can subscribe to the Pulse at taprededminton.ca.
0: I want to give a little shout out. Uh, We'll give you a couple accolades here. Your story uh, posted yesterday about budget, it's titled A Grueling Budget Process Ends with a Tax Increase of 4.9.6 and in 2023 I thought was very well done encapsulating in less than two hours the budget process mm. we talked about a lot of things but I recommend if you want to share the budget with someone who needs to learn about it that article's a great place to start this podcast don't go sending the budget episode add an hour and 30 minutes to the uninitiated. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I want them to be repeat listeners, not, oh my God, do these people ever stop talking? <laughs> so send the article and then send the episodes. Yeah. Perfect. That sounds- yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've made it to the end of another year. This will be the final regular episode before our winter break. We take the Christmas holiday season off just like Council does. So we'll be returning uh, in the new year in mid-January. But- don't forget to tune in next week. We will have the annual tradition, speaking municipally Jeopardy, and we will have three of the freshman counselors on the podcast. It will be counselors Ashley Salvador, Counselor Ann Stevenson, and Counselor Michael Jans. They will all be competing for Jeopardy glory. And oh, uh,
1: we will we have a region category. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Mac, I have procrastinated question writing so. Probably. we can. I can still write that.
1: Excellent. I'll help you with that. And
0: if any of the counselors don't know or are surprised by seeing a regional category, we will know that you don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, dear listener, for listening to us for another year. We will see you next week and then in the next year. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking municipally.